This is Leo from Hannah, Connecticut, and you are listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, streaming at newhavenindependent.org. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about novel Vaclav and Lena, first with the author, and then with my fellow readers, returning guests, Annie Toms and Jessica Sager. As ever, stay tuned at the end of our show for a middle-grade recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. When Vaclav and Lena begins, Vaclav is a 10-year-old boy, a Russian immigrant, living with his parents in Brooklyn, and wanting nothing more than to be the next Harry Houdini. Lena is his lovely assistant, a parentless nine-year-old girl who lives a few blocks away. Rossia, Vaclav's mother, knows something isn't right at Lena's house, but she closes her eyes to what's going on until one day she can't anymore. And then Lena disappears from Vaclav's life, from Rossia's, for the next seven years until on her 17th birthday, like magic, she is back. I had the opportunity to speak with author Haley Tanner earlier this week, and I'd like to play that interview for you now. Haley Tanner lives in Brooklyn, and Vaclav and Lena is her first novel. She is working on her second. According to Twitter, she is an expert thing finder, so I hope she'll come to my house soon, as we always have things that need to be found. Haley, thanks so much for joining us today on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Oh my goodness, thank you so much for having me. So Haley, a lot of first novels are autobiographical, and when I come across one that isn't, or at least doesn't seem to be, I'm always really curious about how it first came to you. Well, one part one part of the inspiration for this novel is um, is pretty inspirational, or is pretty sorry, is pretty personal. And I was I was tutoring um, I was tutoring little kids in ESL uh, in Brighton Beach around Coney Island, and I was working with these little kids who had. It was really incredible Russian accents, and I don't, I don't know about everyone else, but for me, when I was growing up, um, that kind of really intense Russian accent was um, a grown-up accent. You know, it was um, big men on the news and maybe Boris and Natasha. And I was working with these little kids who had this really incredible Russian accent, and the things that came out of their mouths had such weight and interesting gravitas for little kids. And I was just inspired to write in that voice. And I started to play around with the accent in my writing. And I started writing a story and I found that I just couldn't lose that, that specific inflection. So I started writing with that inflection and the characters sort of came to me. The little boy who wanted to be a magician was just appeared to me in a really, really fun, magical way, the kind of thing that is very rare in novel writing, but I think is the thing that we're all in search of all the time. So did Vaclav come to you first before Lena? I think they really presented as a pair. They really, the, the, that he needed, he really, without a foil, without a straight man, Imagine a lovely assistant. A lovely assistant. Without a lovely assistant, I really couldn't have seen Vaclav for for who he was. And they came to me together, these two serious little kids who wanted this 
they wanted this really, really big dream. Yeah, I think they must have come together as a pair. And then I wanted to talk about the structure of the novel a bit because it's in these four sections initially when Vaclav and Lena are nine and ten, and then after Lena is taken by the state and disappears, there's a section Vaclav alone, then a section about Lena alone, and then when they come back together. Did you always know that it was going to be the structure, or how did you come to that? Oh, you know, I, I didn't. I didn't know that it was going to be the structure, and I didn't, um, I didn't have a roadmap for this novel. I didn't do outlining, and I didn't plan ahead. I really began with um, these two children in their living room performing a magic act for their parents and just watched them to see what they would do next. Um, and they surprised me at every turn. And when I realized when I when I realized that it presented in this sort of um, in this sort of magic trick structure where you're presented with the with the items and then this magic disappearing act happens and then there is a reveal of something that reappears. I was really surprised. <laughs> I was really surprised that it came together in these different acts. It was only once I was finished with the book that I could look back and see, oh, it really moves in these in these moments, in these three sections. Uh, I did not have any idea of the structure when I began. And so it sounds like it was really organic. We've talked to a few different writers who talk about how much they rewrote and reorganized and moved things around uh, to finally reach the place where it worked for them. But it sounds like that wasn't your process. Um, it wasn't my process. It's, it's, I, now, now that I'm working on my, on my second novel, I know that that was a really, really lucky thing to have happened to me that that I was able to write it sort of from start to finish um, without an idea of where I was heading Um, and that is it's such that's so much fun it's such a magical sweet spot when that happens in the novel and I've now learned that that doesn't always happen (laughs) it doesn't always begin that way I certainly did a lot of editing and a lot of rewriting but the the structure of the novel really presented itself sort of organically as you said did you always know that magic was going to be a metaphor? I didn't. I didn't. I, I think that um, those kinds of themes and motifs and, um, and the symbols that, are, that sort of turn themselves up in a novel are so much more fun when they appear on their own organically and they're not planned. Um, and I actually... I didn't know that, I didn't know that magic was going to be very important in the novel and I also I personally am not a decent magician. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not even a, an amateur magician. So well, I, I can't even juggle to, so I I can't do a thing. I can't, I'm really really clumsy and I just don't I just don't have the thing. So um, I actually had throughout the book, when whenever Vaclav performs a magic trick, I would always sort of skip that moment in the writing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, those were the places for myself where I'd say, okay, here, uh, one day I'll learn how to perform a magic trick, so I'll be able to write this scene and I'll come back to this <laughs> and like leave myself a little place marker to come back to that uh, until, you know, my my editing friend said, you know, you're you're going to have to actually learn a magic trick so you can write these scenes. Like, <gasps> okay. <laughs> learn a magic trick and then when magic presented itself as um sort of more important thematic element I was really surprised when do you think you realized that 
you know, I I remember the moment that I wrote the very final chapter of the book and I was I, I was in a cafe and I was I was one of the like thousands of people in Brooklyn working on a ca- in a cafe and a on a laptop and I didn't know that I was writing the final scene until it was written and I was so surprised by it and so moved by it that I cried <laughs> in the cafe onto my laptop in public <laughs> and uh it the the final scene where you know Vaclav is able to perform this magic trick for Lena of presenting her with a story of her of her own life um I was really shocked that he did that I didn't know that he was <laughs> I didn't know that he was going to do that and it, I found it really sweet and really moving and I don't take I actually don't feel like I can take any credit for it I think that's that's all Vaclav It's so interesting because one of the questions I had for you was going to be about the ending because I was reading this book um, I read most of it as I was on a plane um, going to a conference for my other job. And uh, and I was about 20 pages from the end, and I started feeling this anxiety because I didn't know how it was going to end. And mm-hmm. I didn't know how you could end it in a way that would feel true and real and finished but not wrapped up too neatly. And I, I, had, you know, I read the last 20 pages with this anxiety of, like, would you pull it off? Um, kind of the way when you're, like, watching a magician and, you know, you're – concerned that they're yeah. not going to actually do the trick right and you won't be convinced. Um, and then I thought the last page was so perfect. Oh, thank you so much. You know what is really funny about the ending is that when when I was editing the book for publication, there's a big question about that ending. You know, like endings are so difficult. Endings are so difficult and no one is no one's ever like really, really, really happy about an ending. It just feels so uncertain. Um, and we we played around with an idea that people might really want to see Vaclav and Lena happy in the future. And, that's, okay, you know, so that's so funny because question. I was about to say that a couple of the books that we've talked about on this show have these epilogues um, like 10, 20 years down the line um, to yeah. kind of give us a glimpse of like where the character is. And I've, I've often talked to the authors about, you know, why did you make that choice? Um, because the book could clearly have ended in the penultimate yeah. chapter and they kind of couldn't let it go so it's interesting yeah. to hear that you considered that oh yeah it was um so, yeah it was it was definitely considered and it was really interesting because I thought all right well if 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 we want to do an epilogue for the book what do I really want for these characters like what do I really want for Vaclav and Lena well what I really want for them is to have happy stable normal lives which means that any kind of epilogue is going to show Vaclav and Lena, you know, carpooling their kids to school or making a mortgage payment or, you know, um, cleaning up after dinner and maybe having a sweet moment. But I felt like there's a reason that fairy tales end with riding off into the sunset. It's, it's so much more romantic when you can imagine it in your mind and it's an unanswered question. It's sort of like the, the uncarved block and, and then, you know, once the question is answered, it's answered forever and there's no more mystery. And I thought, you know, leaving them here, their world is full of possibility and they can do anything together. And we have just limitless possibility for what they might do. If I project them out 20 years and show them happy and stable, but just sort of doing regular things that regular people do, that's that's such a bummer. <laughs> And for me, the novel was so much about secrets and lying and truth and 
you know, what those things mean. And I felt like the ending um, touched on all of those things. You know, the ending really spoke to, and even and even that question of, you know, when is it better to not know? Rasia tells both Lena and Vaklov this bedtime story about this print, this this peasant who falls in love with a princess, and you know, every night she she tells him, "Come to my window for a hundred nights, and maybe." I will run away with you. And he goes for 99 nights and she never comes. And on the hundredth night, he doesn't go because he'd rather not know. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt like all, so this, this issue of, you know, is it, is it better sometimes to, to have the possibility than, than the, mm. than the reality, all of those things in just like, you know, that, that this very short half page ending were touched upon in this, this lovely way. Um, oh, thank you. I, I isn't that the isn't that the strange that's the, the strange mystery of life is that our our human minds want to work in this narrative you know they want us our minds want a story they want to know where things are going and how things are going to wrap up but we actually just live moment to moment to moment and it's really really it's really interesting that the stories the stories we tell ourselves about our lives are so inter, are so important I just I'm I'm complete I'm still completely fascinated by that that little trick of being a human that we can we can really have impact on our experience of the moment by changing the story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves. It's so strange. And I think it's the instinct that motivates, you know, the storytellers and the writers in all of us is yeah, that desire to make sense of something and to shape it and um and to give it to give it weight and meaning. Yeah. By giving it that oh, yeah. narrative arc. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a, it's a great, it's a great, fascinating, strange human impulse. I love that. You know, I mentioned Rasia, and I wanted to talk about her a little bit because if I, if I'm correct, I think that you didn't have any children when you were writing this That's book. That's true. And I, I was having a pre-conversation with my guests who will be discussing the book with me later on in the show. Um, and one of them, Jessica, mentioned that uh, talking about the role of mothers in this book is something she really wanted to talk about because she was so incredibly moved by some of the passages about what it is like to feel mother love. Mm-hmm. And and I had already written that down as something that I wanted to talk about as well um, because I found them so resonant. I have four children. Um, and, yeah. I, and I just thought you got it so right. And thank you. But I wondered, you know, now that you're, now that you are a mom, um, do you, how do you, how do you, do you read those passages any differently? Would you have written them any differently? Or do you feel like, wow, I really, I really knew what I was talking about. <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting question. I found that, um, just for me as a writer, I have a really hard time writing about myself directly. I find that when I'm writing about anything that's close to my own experience, my imagination sort of doesn't engage as well. And, you know, I've, I've always been terrible at writing any sort of nonfiction. <laughs> I really, really need the full imaginative world. And since I, I have a three-year-old now, and um, since I became a mom, I found it impossible to write about being a mom or to write from the perspective of a mother. It's just now it's too close to me and it's too close to my own experience that I sort of my writer brain just doesn't engage. Um, when I when I look back at, at this, I, I sort of feel like, wow, I mean, how how did I I don't know how I knew except for I mean, I have ex, I have experience of this kind of great mother love. I have an awesome 
mom who loves in this sort of powerful, unconditional way. Um, so I definitely have that in my life, but I didn't have the experience of being a mother. And now that I am, I actually find the experience so profound that I'm not able to write about it at all. I'm sort of glad that I snuck this novel under the, under the wire before I had the experience <laughs> because now I'm, I'm crippled by the actual experience now in a great way. You know, I, I was thinking early on that the novel's called Rock, Love, and Lena, but it leaves Rossia out. But to me, she is such an incredibly powerful and present figure throughout the whole novel that almost yeah. it felt almost like she deserved to, be, um, to yeah. be present in the title, too. Yeah, she is. I mean, she is. She's, a, she's such a main character. She would insist. I think, I think <laughs> she could. She'd insist on being <laughs> right in the title of the book. Yeah. I, I mean, I love... I love her so much. I love her so much. And um, I mean, she's, I think she is my, she's my favorite character in the book. She's, she's everything to me. And she's, um, she's so brave and so, and so fascinating. I, I really love that lady. She's another person who I felt like appeared in the book. And I was just so, I was so happy to see her there. <laughs> One of the things that I loved about all the characters was I felt like you let them all be flawed. So even Rasia, who is so brave and so full of love and and trying so hard, you know, has these has these moments of of being um, maybe lesser than we would want her to be. Or, but but in yeah. these understandable ways, you know, um, when Lena reappears, uh, she feels incredibly protective of Vaklov and yeah, um, and and almost you know uh, puts is willing to sacrifice Lena to protect yeah. Vaclav, even as she says, you know, how much she loves her and, and, and feels like she is her own daughter. Um, yeah. You know, and it was a moment where I both could understand and sympathize and want her to rise above. Um, yeah. And, but I think all the characters have those moments um, and that you, was it, was it a conscious choice to let them have those moments of being human, yeah, I, I guess? I, I, I just felt like it was more interesting. It's more interesting. And also if I think, no, I think novels become really, really boring if your characters are their best selves all the time. You know, you want, you want your characters to act, you know, sort of at the extremities of their personality because that's really fascinating. You know, moderate, reasonable people um, are, are just less interesting and less compelling than people who act at their extremes. But, um, there, there is like, there is sort of um, a, an attraction when you're writing toward uh, re reliving your own life. You know, being able to have twenty twenty hindsight and redoing things the way that you would wish that you had done them, and having your characters be superheroes all the time. But it's actually not so interesting. Um, so making them flawed was really. Making Lena flawed was sort of essential. She came to me as a really flawed person, but making Vaclav's mother flawed, I thought was was just, was interesting. It was just more interesting. How much research did you do into the Brighton Beach community um, before writing this, or while writing it? Um, I was, I was when I when I began writing the book. I was um, I was tutoring for a, a specific family that really inspired the setting of, um, of, you know, Vaclav's house and his, and his mother and his father and just sort of the, the way that that home smelled, smelled and felt and how warm it was. 
Um, and then I tried to I tried to get the I think I tried to strike a balance with research of uh, not not over researching so that I could still imagine what what this what this family would have experienced. Um, but you want to get the you want to get the facts right without relying on the facts. You know, you want to get just enough fact right so that you can tell the truth of the story. So I tried to walk that line between over researching the book and under researching um, this novel. But um, I have to say, they they sort of if if I if I look back at the novel now, I can see that there are there are moments in their in their life as a family that I shied away from overtelling because I didn't want to get too absorbed in the facts of say, you know, their, their immigration process, Mm -hmm. you know, that's a, that's a really, really big, weighty, complicated thing. And it's definitely, it's definitely underwritten in the book. You know, it's told in a, in a single chapter, in a single moment. Oh yeah. You know, they came, they came came to America from Russia and and that's that's a whole other novel. <laughs> that's a whole other novel. That story. The whole other, other seven novels, probably that are that would be great for someone else to write. So I mentioned to someone that I was doing this book for the show, and they looked it up on Amazon, and then pointed me to this very vituperative Amazon review, which you know, take yeah. it for what it is, because it's an Amazon review, you know. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it was it was it was kind of ripping the novel apart for um, yeah. relying on. Uh, stereotypes. Um, yeah. and it's all, you know, oh, it's borscht here and vodka there. And, you know, uh, this person obviously has no knowledge of this real community. And, th- you know, this is not how we really are. And I, you know, first of all, I was like, well, you should read the book. Um, the person who had sent it to me, <laughs> yeah. uh, I was like, and not rely on an Amazon reader review. Um, but I did one and I, and I disagreed. I, I mean, to me, yeah. I really disagreed with that characterization. To me, it worked, and it did not feel like it was all stereotypes. But I wondered if you had concern about how people would um, take, you know, the authenticity of something, of, of you writing from a place that's not your community. And people, I yeah. think, often um, are hostile when someone who is not of them writes about them, and if that gave you pause. Totally. That is I, that is the most terrifying thing i've read that i I know exactly the amazon review that you're talking about because i've read it no it's it's really interesting because i think for me as a writer that's the most terrifying um problem of writing like i always want to write i always want to write someone else's experience my experience is so boring to me i I live in my experience you know it's really Mm -hmm. every day so i always want to escape to someone else's life when i'm writing and then every so every creative project will present that issue that you're trying to tell someone else's story. Um, the the thing I find really interesting about the 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 stereotype thing is that I actually I actually didn't have those stereotypes in my in my mind as stereotypes. I was just seeing those things. <laughs> you know, I was right. actually just. Um, well, I used to go out to um, I used to go out to Brighton Beach to do this tutoring, and I was really really broke just really devastatingly broke in a way that, you know, I would figure out how many quarters I had to pay for my subway trip each day because I could not afford to buy a Metro card for the month. And there was, there was this amazing um, supermarket, this amazing Russian supermarket that had a big vat of borscht boiling at the back. And it absolutely that big vat of borscht at the back of the supermarket, you could buy a big, you know, tub of borscht for less than a dollar 
and I would eat it on the sidewalk before my tutoring lessons. And that absolutely, it kept me alive for a year. I was just so fond of it. (laughs) And I knew that the smell of that had to go into the novel. The fact that borscht was like a Russian stereotype to anyone else actually came as sort of a shock to me. It's just, to me, it was just the the truth of the neighborhood that Mm -hmm. in the back of the supermarket, there was this borscht boiling. And when I went to these people's apartment that there was that like wonderful smell. So I don't, I don't know, I guess, is is it, is it sort of a stereotype by any other name? It's so, it's so confusing. And I definitely still struggle with that, that stuff as a, as a writer. Like when do you cross the line from being a storyteller to being, you know, an imposter taking on someone else's story? It's, it's terrifying and strange that, that, you know, you put your work out there and you could possibly have offended someone or hurt someone. It's so, it's so terrifying. That's just, I have no, I have no good, comfortable answer for that. It's frightening. <laughs> I, I feel a little bit that's what Vaclav does in the end is, you know, is he an imposter or is he a storyteller when he tells his final right. story to, to Lena right. and, and, he, and we kind of are left with that question. Yeah. But, it's, it's, um, what, I think that the nature of the the truth in those situations is really, really complicated and and totally strange. And I don't have I I certainly don't have the answer. Um, I think that the the project of the novelist is um, try to tell the truth without necessarily telling the fact. Well, one of my favorite quotes is from Tim O'Brien, who I've mentioned on this show before because I love him so much, but. He has a passage in his book, The Things They Carried, where he says, the hardest thing to learn about writing fiction, the facts don't necessarily equal the truth. Right. And I feel like that's really true. Right. It, it, it's, it's really true. And it's really, it's, it's difficult. And I think that you just have to trust, you have to trust the characters. I think also in a, in a novel, you know, you want to try to be specific about the detail and, and you have to rely on really on good specificity, but also you rely on language and the sort of dictionary of symbology that we as human beings have to um, to trigger emotion and to use a certain smell to convey a certain feeling. So in some sense, the stereotypes are the stereotypes are are, are there. You know, it's, it's a minefield of cliche and stereotype. Um, finding that like balance is really tough. Well, Haley, I loved this book so much. I thank you. Loved reading it so much, and it's rare when I find a book that makes me feel so excited. I'm so happy that you were willing to talk with us. Um, so, thank you for being here. Thank you so very much. I really, really enjoyed it, and what a wonderful interview. Thank you. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I'd like to take a moment to introduce my fellow readers. Annie Toms is making her third appearance on the show, and Jessica Saker is making her fourth. Annie and Jessica, I'm thrilled to have you back on Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Happy to be here. Annie and Jessica, there's so much to talk about here that I wasn't sure where to start. So much as Vaclav does throughout the novel, I made a list. Magic, secrets, shame, lies, truth, power, agency, voice, control, safety, friendship, love. 
Annie, I'm going to start with you. Pick any one of those and go. I want to start with magic and in particular with disappearing acts. One of the things that I really loved about this book was the way that magic worked seamlessly as a metaphor for a lot of the major plot points happening in the book itself, as well as magic being Vaclav's um, way of living and, and greatest hope and dream for the future. Um, when I was rereading the book, I was particularly struck by the way that disappearing acts weave all the way through the book, that very early when Vaclav and Lena are talking about the ancient Egyptian sarcophagus of mystery and how it works and how somebody disappears inside it, um, this is on page 98, Vaclav says, I don't understand. Where do I go when I disappear? And Lena says, you go inside, you close door like a closet. Then you sneak behind back wall, which is not really back wall, is another door. And then you open the front door and the audience will see that you are gone. But really, you are behind the second door. Easy. And of course, later in the book, when Lena disappears, she doesn't really disappear. She's still in Brooklyn. She's two express stops away from Baklav. She's living in Park Slope. And there's this sense that I had looking back over it that she is, in a way, doing the magic trick herself um, and understands the magic trick even more than Vaclav does. So that disappearing act was such a central part of the book. Um, but other things disappear as well. I would love to throw that out to you, too. Yeah, so this is Jessica. And, you know, as you were saying that, it reminded me of a part in the book um, when when Lena is is uh, very young, she's very powerless, and she masters invisibility as a magic trick. It's on page 173, and it reminds me so much of that essential quality of childhood that because adults don't think you're important, you're able to disappear. It says, meanwhile, Lena on the floor was listening to every word. Because she was silent, adults forgot themselves in front of her and Lena acquired a superpower that most kids wished they had. She became invisible. And she becomes invisible so many times throughout the book in so many different ways, uh, both intentionally and not. I was struck in that quote that you read, Annie, about the sarcophagus with the use of the word sneaking. She says, you know, you sneak behind the door. And it struck me because I had written down another quote much later on, when Lena comes back and Rasia learns that she is back in Vaklov's life and she is, even though she, she loves Lena and worried about her all this time and thought about her constantly, she's very concerned. And, and she says, um, and this is on page 254, she should have known that when Lena came back, it would be secret. It would be sneaking and lying. With that girl, it was always sneaking and lying. Always. What? Not her fault. What could she do but sneak and lie? So much shame in her life and so much sadness. But it's that way that sneaking can be both um, what empowers her, but also what condemns her. And it's very interesting, actually, to think of it as sneaking, because when you think of it in, in the space of magic and magic tricks, magic, the, show, the magic show or the sideshow is all about performance. It's all very out in the open. So you're hiding all of these things in plain sight. You're hiding everything 
it, as as sort of the, the sneak and the trick, but you're performing it all and you're telling the audience where to look and you're you're right out there in front of everybody. And you know, there, there's a role in the of the audience there too, right? Because I think with the audience, there is a conscious willingness to suspend disbelief. And so one of the reasons that the audience doesn't see is because they allow themselves to be, um, is that their attention to be diverted. And you see that most, you know, most, most clearly and most obviously when Vaclav performs his initial magic trick, the first magic trick in the book for his parents, and he makes the quarter disappear. And Rasia sees everything, she says. I don't think I was supposed to see him tipping the quarter um, into his hand and then putting it into his pocket. And she, But she oohs and ahs and pretends that she doesn't. But the, that willing disbelief repeats itself throughout the book, not just with regard to magic itself, but with regard to all the events that happen. So for a long time, Rasia knows that something is not right at Lena's house, and she suspects what is wrong but she wills herself not to see. Right. And I mean, I think that that speaks to, you know, there's a lot of reflection in the book about what it means to have a mother, not to have a mother. And Rossiya's particular quality of attention where Vaclav is concerned, where in some cases she overlooks Lena. Although, you know, there is this funny moment, you know, on page 57, the chapter that actually starts, Rossiya is not tricked where she sees Lena scurry away from the refrigerator and it says, sometimes being a mother is like when you turn on the lights and all the roaches go running for cover. And if you are looking <laughs> carefully at the floor, expecting to see all the scurrying, then you will see it. And then it talks about all the things that might distract us from seeing the scurrying. And so it is funny because Lena has this um, visibility to Rasia. She has this power to become invisible but then she also has this kind of tragic invisibility to the adults around her that could help her at these really important moments in her life. And I think that invisibility is related to voice and this, this or lack of voice. I wanted to talk a little about the role of the magician and the role of the lovely assistant. And in their relationship, Vaclav is the magician. Lena is his lovely assistant. And as I was thinking about it this morning, I thought, you know, the lovely assistant never talks. Um, she is never the one who has any words. And I was very moved when Lena is taken by the state um, because Rossiev reports what she has seen to the police. Vaclav's question is, who will talk for her? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I thought, you know, and it's, it's so well meant. It's so well meaning. Like he, he is her voice. He sees that as his role. He sees it as helping her and protecting her. But in some ways he takes her voice away. And we see that again when she is returned and they are making out and they're on the bed and she decides she wants to stop and she tries to tell him and she says, um, she says she doesn't know if he can hear her. She doesn't even know if her words are, um, or are, are even coming out. She says, um, she talks as fast as possible, even though she can't hear her own voice. She tries to make herself shout. though she is not sure if any sound is coming out. And I wondered if Vaclav, with the best of intentions, is silencing her. That is such an interesting take on it because it really is a flip for me. One of the things I loved about the last part of the book 
is I thought about Lena almost coming back and she's become the magician and she enlists Vaclav as her assistant in this project. Mm. And yet you're right. She is silenced by him at the same time. I hadn't even considered that aspect. I don't think that the silence is necessarily disempowering. I think that Lena's silence is often a silence that is full of power. And there's a, there's a lot in here about Lena and Vaclav being able to communicate with each other without speaking, you know, communicate wordlessly, which a magician and an assistant would also do, you know, that you have the routine so down that you're responding to gesture and you're responding to um, these, these minuscule movements. Um, and so, so I mean, I said, I totally hear what you're saying and I, and I feel it, 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 it might be a danger for Vaclav to speak for Lena, but I also feel that ultimately she really does have a voice in a different sort of way. And I also, it connected to me with um, the fact that, that uh, sort of the English is a second language aspect of the, the uh, characters and the relationships that they have with each other that Rasia and Oleg, Vaklov's parents, decide, make the choice that they are going to only speak English. They're not going to speak Russian. And so you have, especially when Vaklov and Lena are children, um, you have these characters all choosing to speak in a language in which they are not fluent. None of them are fluent in English. So they're choosing not to be fluent even in the safe space of their home, even when Lena comes in. When Vaklov and Lena speak to each other, they speak to each other in English and Vaclav's English is a little bit better than Lena's, but they don't choose to speak to each other in the language that they could totally understand each other in um, so that they can practice, so that they can assimilate, um, but it, it becomes this, this kind of distancing from the real meaning. And there are all these wonderful passages about Rasia not having the words that she wants, um, and some of that is an, a language thing, and some of that is just that she can't figure out exactly how she wants to express herself to Vaclav, even if she had the language. Um, but but just what what happens to her meaning when she's forced to use, or when she chooses herself to use the language of English? Uh, on page 127, uh, there's this wonderful line, she's trying to make a suggestion, but her words rush out of her mouth, stomp, 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 always sounding like a command. There's this this inflection where, so, so that in, in all of these cases, the, the language that is spoken is not necessarily representative of exactly what the speaker is trying to say or is trying to get at. And sometimes it's the wordless communication that is more meaningful. I want to return to that idea, but to go back for a moment to what you said about how silence for Lena can be a kind of power. Because I think that's true, but I think it's the kind of power that one has only when one is otherwise utterly powerless. So one of my favorite passages was, or scenes, was when Lena, um, after she's taken by the state, uh, is then placed with M, who becomes, is her foster mother and then adopts her, and she refuses to speak. And Emily is, has, does not know what to do and takes her to this therapist who examines her for an hour and says she's going to need so much testing and so much therapy and hours and hours. And Emily kind of senses that that is in fact not what Lena needs, and she makes her this grilled cheese sandwich. And she says, you never have to speak if you don't want to, but I'm, I've made you this sandwich, and it's the best sandwich in the tri-state area, and it would be great if you'd say thank you. And Lena says thank you, and Emily is stunned. And it's like Emily senses that all Lena has is the power to decide, 
when to talk or not to talk. And she gives her that. It's like the most, most wonderful gift. We don't see a lot of him in the book, but the little we see of her, I just love her so much. She's, she just seems to have this intuitive understanding of what this damaged child needs so badly. But I think it would be a mistake to say that her silence is power because she has chosen it. Mm. And I think that, you know, she almost more than anyone, even even more than Rase, I think, is crippled by her lack of ability to speak in the language of those around her. So she is so um, insecure because of her difficulties with English and so likely to let others speak for her. And even once she is with Emily and she's doing so well in school and she has completely mastered English, she is just crippled by this anxiety. And even though only Emily sees it, Emily knows that she is, you know, what she says, she says to everyone else, she looks like a normal teenager, but to Emily, she was in the eye of the storm. I think that we might connect this to this idea of secrets and when secrets can be positive and when they can be negative, but, but also how, how secrets, um, how Haley Tanner keeps describing secrets as, um, uh, uh, delicate and and something that makes you vulnerable um on on page 82 um after lena and vaklov see the the sideshow for the first time uh it says without even talking about it they knew they were going to keep the sideshow a secret something can feel like it should be a secret if it is very close to your insides so that if you tell it and someone else says a bad thing about it or worse laughs at it then you will feel very hurt and then on 202 Lena describes Vaklov as her secret. Vaklov she keeps packed away inside her chest in her rib cage, tucked between her delicate ribs and her pumping heart. So special, so sacred is he to her. She cannot even bear to speak his name aloud to anyone. He is a secret she will keep with her forever, like a child's sacred talisman blanket. She cannot stand for anyone else even to touch him, even with their ears. And so the silence about secrets is is this protective silence. Right. This, this. Uh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Go, Go ahead, ahead and finish. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that makes me think about how Lena herself becomes this precious secret that both Vak- Vaklav and Rasia hold so close to their hearts, and yet mm. they can never discuss. And it's almost that same protection as if by not speaking about her, they're keeping her safe, as if by not admitting their pain, they won't be in pain. You know, there's this wonderful moment where Vaklov says, you know, do you wonder about Lena? And Rasia says, no, no, you're just thinking about her because mm. it's her birthday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which obviously seven years later, Rasia still knows it's Lena's birthday. They still, they have this shared love. And in fact, in that moment, Vaklov feels a new sense of closeness to his mother. And yet for seven years, they've never shared or spoken about this very profound thing that happened to both of them. Right. And I think that gets to the way that secrets, although they can be precious and they can be a sign of something shared and and wordlessly communicated, can also in this book really have a flip side. Um, And in that sense, you know, and specifically the, the, the failure to speak of Lena for seven years, not clear to me that that's a good thing, but, you know, even beyond that, there are, there are secrets that are bad and damaging secrets, like what is going on with Lena at her aunt's house. And then there are secrets where secrets are connected to shame. And so, for example, uh, Lena, when they're children, at one point, 
uh, says to Vaclav that he is not to talk to her in school anymore, not to walk her to and from school anymore, and not to tell anyone that they have this after-school life with their magic show. And for Vaclav, this is because it is so special, and it is something just between the two of them, and to share it would mar its that quality. But for Lena, it's because she doesn't want the other kids to know because she thinks that they'll make fun of her, and she's ashamed of Vaclav, and she knows that, and it makes her feel bad about herself because... For Lena, secrets are something that are very much connected to shame. And for Rasia, I think that they are often somewhere in the middle. There's a point, there's a, a line where she says, for Rasia, secrets are on the way to something bad. So they don't have to be bad, but they're on that road. And for Vaklov, secrets are innocent in a certain way. He's a magician. A secret is what you do not show the audience, but what you keep special and hidden. I mean, Vaklov has this extraordinary, beautiful innocence. And I feel like his relationship to secrets is part of that. And I, I want to connect this to, to one other image that goes back to disappearing um, where we started. Uh, the, the, the idea of, of making something a secret, the, the image of Rasia's game at bedtime with both Vaclav and with Lena, um, where she, you know, she puts Vaclav to bed every night. And, and then for some period of time, she puts Lena to bed every night in her aunt's house. And she pretends that each child is a lump in the bed that needs to be gotten rid of, you know, so she, she stretches the blanket out and she pushes them and she's like, lump, get down, get, get out of this bed and, and tries to smooth them out and tries to pretend that they're not there. And Vaclav's reaction to that every night is he giggles and, and he's, he's very, it's very, a very playful thing for him. Um, but Lena is silent. Um, and, and on 91, it says, Lena seemed to submit to and welcome the ritual, but did not ever smile. Still, Rasia had never considered altering or omitting one tiny word or gesture from the routine. And so, so you have this, this totally different child reaction to the, the play acting of disappearing and invisibility. And obviously, Rasia knows that they're there, and that's the game. But for Lena, it's, it's a ritual rather than a game kind of being played out. And it made me think, as I was rereading that this morning, um, it made me think of, of Rasia as a magician. Rasia trying to, as, as Lena says early, um, trying to control events using supernatural powers, trying to um, have this ritual with each child that plays on these, these themes of disappearing and invisibility, but also the comfort of doing the same thing over and over and trying to make some safety out of that invisibility, that feeling of invisibility. That, that and take, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. That takes me to a place that I found myself puzzled by and I wanted your thoughts on, which is when, when Rasia and Vaklav go together to Coney Island and they see the sideshow and they see the magician and his lovely assistant, Heather Holiday, and they watch the, trick where she, the assistant gets into a box and the magician uh, sticks swords all through the box and then invites them to come up and see because they're the only two people in the audience to see and they open the box and they see that the swords are stuck through at all these angles and it's only because of the way the assistant has contorted herself that she has escaped being hurt um, and she is in such a position that she cannot move at all because to move would be to be injured and they look at this, and then Rasia says, is lovely. And that was not the reaction I was expecting. 
So I, I wondered about that moment too. I was really hoping it would come up in this conversation. I'd love to know your take on it. I feel that Sid, you bringing it up in this moment gives me a different perspective because I was just thinking about how Rasia is a magician herself in bringing her family, right? She's the driving force that uproots her family, brings them to this country, transforms her son. She talks about how did he become this tall American boy, transforms their lives together at great personal sacrifice and pain. She makes Lena disappear later in the book. She's the one who brings the children together. She has all these magic acts. And I wonder if in seeing Heather Halliday in this box, she's in some way seeing her own uh, feats of contortion and transformation expressed. Mm. I, I was also struck by the the strength that Heather Holiday has and shows. Um, I, I mean, I, I, took, I, I very much feel exactly what you're saying, Jessica, about Rasia as a magician. I think that that's just such a, a fabulous way to, to think about this. But Heather Holiday is is such a strong, very minor character, but a, but such a strong character. She's she's not even described so much as the lovely assistant, even though she plays the assistant in that particular act. Her major act is sword swallowing, which you know you can take that into all kinds of horrible metaphorical places when you think about the abuse that Lena has at the hands of whatever man is is in um, is in the aunt's house. Um, but she she does. She's the main act in certain parts of the sideshow, Heather Holiday is, and she wears this gold fringed bikini, which does not make her look naked. It makes her look strong and powerful and natural. And I think that there's something about the lack of shame that Heather Holiday has, the lack of shame, the lack of fear, that she's in this impossible, dangerous situation in this box. And she's like, yeah, here I am. She still wears the smile that is like winking. She has a sort of control over herself. And that's what I thought that Rossiette was responding to in that moment. One of the things that I like about this book is the way so many things can be flipped. Nothing is just good or bad. And secrets, secrets being one of those. But here, too, it's so easy to see this as here is a woman being forced by a man to fit herself into a box, into the way that he wants her to fit um, and to contort herself to be who he wants her to be. And you can see Lena in that regard as well. And yet you can flip it and see it as being about strength, about transformation, um, about the power uh, to survive. Right. And it evokes for me the extraordinary ending of the book where Vaclav performs a spectacular magic trick, which you can see as a lie. You can see as a secret. You can see as a transformation. You can see as an act of love, an act of storytelling, where he gives Lena a different history and, and maybe because of that, a different future. Mm. And and at that moment, going back to this idea of, of the audience choosing to believe on some level, on that last page, I mean, the last chapter is titled People Who Knew He Was Lying. And everybody <laughs> knew, right? I mean, Lena's real mom, Emily, knew this was not the truth, but she also knew that Baklov was not lying. So, I mean, 
Emily knows that he's making up this story, this magical story. And Lena knows that it's a lie, but she loves it and believes it. Um, and it says like a fairy tale, like a song, like a bedtime story, like a magic trick. Uh, so there is that choice of the audience to buy in with the magician and to believe. And I think it's about the way that stories can save us. Mm, absolutely. Well, Jessica and Annie, as ever, it has been a pleasure talking with you. I'm looking forward to you joining me again soon. This is Book Talk. I'm Sid Oppenheimer. Next up, New Haven librarian John Jessen offers our middle grade pick of the week. Hello, I'm John Jessen, manager of the Cortland S. Wilson Branch Library. We are the newest and largest branch in the New Haven Free Public Library system. The Wilson Branch is off Howard Avenue at 303 Washington Avenue in the Hill neighborhood of New Haven. Today I'd like to review The Martian by Andy Weir. The Martian happens to be one of those books that has a great story behind the great story. Weir is a self-professed geek. When asked to choose between Star Trek and Star Wars, he answers Doctor Who. He spends his time reading current space research and writing his own software to track rocket trajectories. He daydreams interstellar disaster scenarios, like, say, what are all the things that could go wrong on a manned flight to Mars? And what good is a disaster scenario unless you can't work your way out of it? Weir realizes one day that all his researching might make an interesting novel with the main character modeled on himself, only smarter and braver, voila, the Martian is born. He sends out his baby to a large handful of publishers, and voila, he's completely rejected. His friends talk him into offering the book as an almost free e-read. The book goes viral, publishers wake up and suddenly take notice. The book is published, The movie rights optioned, Matt Damon comes on board, movie gets made, Oscar buzz starts, and here we are today. Now exactly what is it that The Martian possesses that is making it one of the year's most talked about books? Well, do yourself a favor. First chance you get, head over to your local public library or bookstore and find a copy of The Martian. Crack it open. Start reading. In less than a minute, this book will grab you. Or it won't. If this book doesn't get you by, say, page four, then you can ask the librarian or store clerk for another suggestion. Because this book isn't going to do it for you. Personally, I was weary of The Martian at first. I don't really do science fiction. Even though this one really only qualifies as science fiction because someone is walking around Mars. Still, how compelling can a story about a guy stuck on Mars for years waiting to die of starvation or dehydration or just plain bad luck be? Well, pick up The Martian and you'll see. Here's a brief synopsis. Mark Watney, the main character, is left for dead when a massive, angry, killer dust storm forces the first ever man voyaged on Mars to an early departure. Watney's presumed dead. 
No one can survive what happens to him at the beginning of the story without crazy luck. Which is something Watney has in spades in this book. But then, he's got a lot of very bad luck, too. He's got the yin and yang of lucks. You'll be biting your nails through the whole book, cheering with the world when we find out he's somehow alive, groaning when we're sure he's finally going to meet his end. Cheer, groan, repeat. Oh, remember the square peg and round hole scene in that movie Apollo 13? When someone tosses a bunch of gear on the table in front of a handful of NASA's top engineers and says, make this stuff, make this fit into that with this stuff. The Martian is an entire book with the flavor of that scene. It's the appeal of that survivalist fantasy of of being the smart person who could solve all the impossible puzzles under enormous pressure and stress, but with a lot of candor and humor folded in. NASA admired the math in the Martian so much that some of them are saying it's required reading. For me, it was like one giant math problem. Purpose, research, hypothesis, experiment, Analysis, conclusion, wait, are we still alive? Whoa, who knew you could make rocket fuel with pee? Beware, the Martian is spiced with the F-bomb. But where the author knows when and where to have Watney use his choice words. This is a fantastic book to give teens, or, or any of those people who like their elaborate science served on a down-to-earth, or I guess, Mars platter this holiday season. Happy reading. We're taking a break for the holiday, but we'll be back in one month. Our next show will air January 13th. We don't actually know what our next book will be yet, so if you have ideas, please post them on Facebook or tweet them to BookTalkWNHH or email me at BookTalkWNHH at gmail.com. When we decide, we'll be posting it all over social media, so keep an eye out. You'll have to get to the New Haven Public Library right away. Happy holidays, and as ever, happy reading.